two men of color vanished after last being seen in the same deputy's patrol car. I knew something was wrong. My mother knows. It's the strangest case, the most unsettling case. Listen to The Last Ride podcast, part of the NPR Network. This is Abraham Verghese. I'm the author of The Covenant of Water. I've been wanting to talk with Abraham Verghese for more than 10 years. His 2009 novel, Cutting for Stone, is one of my favorite books, and I leapt at the chance to speak with him about his newest book, The Covenant of Water. The epic novel incorporates deep family secrets, colonialism and caste structures, and expertly weaves his own medical background into the narrative. Abraham Verghese spoke with me about crafting this impressive novel and the partnership between writer and reader. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Now, I'm very hesitant to dive into talking about this book because I don't want to spoil anything, yet I do not know how to give an overview of the book for the listener. You know, there was a letter that accompanied my preview copy of the book, and this sentence captured my attention. Most families are bound not just by blood, but by secrets. So I want the listener to know that, rest assured, we will avoid revealing any secrets. But I guess my question for you is, is it, is it safe to talk about the condition? Yeah, I think it's uh, quite safe to talk about the condition. So as you're alluding to, uh, this family is, is troubled by what they call the condition in 1900. But by the end of the book, becomes clear uh, exactly what that is. And, uh, you know, I was always intrigued by the idea of family secrets, especially when you have a fairly close community such as ours, which is a, you know, a, a Christian community who believe their faith comes from St. Thomas the Apostle landing in the south of India. And when you have arranged marriages within this community, then the slightest thing can taint a bride or a groom's, especially a bride's, chances of marriage forever. And so there were always these secrets, some of them completely, you know, unnecessary and bogus. And so I think that was sort of the genesis for this idea of the condition. You know, I also wanted to ask, because the novel is dedicated to your mother, and I understand this from the same letter, that your mother was a storyteller? Is that a bit of the origin of the story as well? Yeah, my mother was an incredible extroverted storyteller, full of anecdotes that just got richer over time, (laughs) the same anecdote. But uh, the genesis of this book was really, I was looking to set a novel in a landscape because I think landscape is a character, at least for me. And uh, my young niece at the time, she was five, born in America, asked my mother, who had lived on three continents, asked my mother, Amachi, what was it like when you were a little girl? And my mother was so taken by that question that she wrote longhand a a document over over 100 pages, illustrated, and she was a beautiful uh, artist. And uh, when I saw that manuscript, it just sort of struck me that I was sitting on this treasure trove of information that I actually knew pretty well in the sense that even though I grew up in Africa, I spent summer vacations with my grandparents and later in medical school had many more opportunities to be in Kerala And so really my mother's anecdotes and the reminder of the richness of this this small community. And I think the only novel that readers seem to all know that's also set in the same community is The Wonderful God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. So it's the same community, 
you know, different story. So that's the genesis. Yes, mom had a, a lot to do with it. And uh, unfortunately, she passed during the writing of this, but she knew that I was well on my way with it. And it pleased her enormously. As I mentioned, we're avoiding spoilers. So I'll probably be asking a lot about structure and craft and overarching themes. And, you know, I guess this is a question about craft because we have we have several separate stories that only begin to weave together about 250 pages in. So do you do you outline, do you write the storyline separately and then weave them together, or do you write it as we read it? How did the story come together for you? You know, I wish, Beth, that I was the kind of writer who knew my story and mapped it out, and I certainly <laughs> tried. In fact, on my right side here is this huge whiteboard on which I had sketched out the whole outline of the book but I kept deviating from it, so I would have to, you know, take a photograph, erase, and start again. So I think that, you know, I had some things in mind, but inevitably, uh, there's a lovely saying that character is determined by decisions that people take under pressure, you know. And so when I would put a character under pressure, oftentimes they would come up with something slightly different than what I had in mind, or very different. And so the book kept taking a different course. And then, of course, the decision to sort of separate chunks of narrative that had to do with different people at different times came later, and that was strategic. You you want readers to, you know, sort of be in, immersed in a certain world, and and then you sort of clear their palate by going to Glasgow, Scotland in, you know, 1917. And so I think that was very conscious, but that came much, much later. This might not be a theme, but what jumped out to me throughout the book was this idea of forgiveness. Like when Big Amici's husband uncharacteristically like snapped at her or Digby forgives his mother or Philippos and Elsie or and later like Lenin and Mariama. Was I just imagining that forgiveness was a theme? Was I just picking up on something that wasn't there or, or was that one of your themes? You know, that's interesting. Uh, uh, I hadn't consciously thought about that as a theme, but I've always felt that, you know, um, as a reader, I'm in a partnership with you, Beth, as the, as the, I'm sorry, as the writer, I'm in a partnership with you, the reader. So I provide the words and you provide your imagination and somewhere in middle space, this fictional movie is created, which is very much yours as much as it is mine. I mean, I, interesting, interestingly to, and this, I think echoes what you asked me, I had the opportunity to audition for and then to do the to do the recorded books version of my novel. And, you know, I knew this novel very well. And here I was reading it for two and a half weeks. And suddenly <laughs> I was seeing themes in the book that I swear I didn't intentionally put in. And I was seeing connections. So I think the subconscious mind is um, is a very powerful thing. And for all you know, uh, you know, for all I know, I was indeed trying to make forgiveness a major theme. I, I think that, you know, in my, there are recurring themes that I notice. One is of the sense that, of, that I could have been a better parent, a better husband. So I think a lot of the themes that come across overtly in that sense are redemption and forgiveness. Yes, very much so. I want to talk about names and, and perhaps the power of a name. We know one narrator, first only as the bride, but then she becomes Big Amici. And and then we learn her Christian name, you know, like 450 pages in. And 
baby mall has a name, but it's not revealed. At least I might have missed it if it was, so I apologize for that. Is there a disconnect between reader and character when a name is not revealed, do you think? Well, I think with the first character, Bigamichi, the, the young girl, the young bride who begins the story, that was something of a of a conceit. And uh, I don't think it was to everyone's taste, but uh, my editor and I liked it. We liked the idea of her being, in a sense, nameless and you know, also to some degree powerless. And then by the end of that section... You know, she's earned this this name that has nothing to do with her physical stature, but has to, has everything to do with how she's developed as a character. And uh, so, but but the other the other part of the answer is that in Kerala, in general, uh, in any community in Kerala, there's an abundance of pet names, and it it's almost comical because to this day I know certain people by their pet names, and if I went looking for them in the city and place they worked, I would never find them because I don't know their official name. You know, they may be known as Madras Baby or Rubber George or, you know, <laughs> uh, Goodyear Philippos. And that may not be enough to locate them, although I know exactly who they are. And, they, you know, so, so it goes. At one point in the book, Big Amici took her mother and daughter to discover what was wrong with Baby Mall. And the doctor could identify the ailment and also that something was wrong with Big Amaji's mother. And this is a quote, yet despite being able to name these disorders, he could offer no treatment. And at this point, I started thinking about how there were several doctors in the book. And, and this becomes a, I guess, where life meets art question because you are a doctor. Was there something that you wanted the reader who might not be medically inclined to take away from these various metal, medical perspectives that you offered throughout the book? Well, you know, I, I always feel that, uh, you know, I, I don't feel I should be apologetic about putting medicine in the book because, you know, you write what you know. But more than that, I always think of medicine as life plus plus, you know, life at its most extreme, life, you know, that I have the great privilege or misfortune to observe at its most you know critical moments and um, so I think we're all inherently fascinated by procedures of some sort even if it's the procedure of a of a police department and the detectives or you know a, a submarine as in Tom Clancy's work so I think there's an element of my trying to bring in the reality of a world that I know very well uh, so there's that element of it but also in that world in the in the procedural element of a profession, certain truths and characters are are outlined and, and highlighted in a way that uh, I think is very interesting. And so, you know, there's something about those medical encounters that aren't purely medical. They're really about human beings in distress and, you know, uh, trying to help each other. And, you know, it's interesting that comment you made about they can name the disease but not do much about it. That's still very true. You know, we are very good at putting labels on things. We're not always good at being able to then help, you know. And so, uh, but that comes. And I think one of the joys of setting a book between 1900 and 1970 is not only was this a time of tremendous change in the world, World War I, World War II, in India, Indian, Indian independence from Britain after centuries of colonialism, it was also a tremendous time of 
development within medicine, you know, just the advances in surgery. And in a way, the condition is a metaphor for that, you know, so something that has a label, the condition, by the end of the book becomes, you know, a very discrete entity with a biological basis. And uh, I just love that notion that, uh, you know, to this day, everything is known. It's just that we don't know it. And, and the nature of science and medicine is we're gradually trying to know what is there. You know, God knows it or, you know, if you like, the master planner knows what it is, but we're getting there. You know, you mentioned bringing medicine in and what was happening in in India during this time, during the 1900s. And I was going to ask about, you know, you, you brought in other heavy-hitting topics like colonialism and, and the caste structure. This was a different time than, you know, I have lived. What do you want, what did you want to illustrate to readers about those subjects as well, the colonialism and the caste structure? Well, I'm not sure that I, you know, was, uh, was proselytizing or trying to uh, you know, bringing across an agenda. But I think you really can't write about India without without being aware of both of those things, uh, caste structure, colonialism. And the, you know, the, the caste structure is very much intact there. But, you know, you have variations of that in America. Uh, think about Isabel Wilkerson's wonderful book, Caste, you know, hierarchies in society where some people have more opportunities and others are less. That's just sort of a universal phenomenon. Um, colonialism has been, you know, interesting because here's the paradox that I'm speaking to you, and I think in the language of the colonizers of my parents' uh, land. And so, uh, you know, the British left many, many influences very different from the ones that they tend to claim. They tend to claim how they, quotes unquote modernized India, but the fact is every railway, every building, every you know, enterprise they did there was solely for the purpose of carrying the goods that they pillaged from India, the loot, to Britain. In fact, the word loot is borrowed from Hindi. So even, they took even that vocabulary. So it was really Britain that was modernized at the expense of India. But as you said, as you point out, that's just all history. Nevertheless, it, it, it really is in the DNA of the land, just as, you know, the in America, our, our original sin, as Mitch McConnell would put it, and I don't often quote Mitch McConnell, but, you know, our original sin is the landing of the slaving ship, yeah, the slave ship in, I think it was 1700 something. And so those are just, you know, what shape us, they are the things that you can't quite dance around unless you're writing something, you know, very slice of life that can manage to ignore all those things. We just talked about Baby Moll's ailment. She was a joyful gift to all around her, but she also had a gift. Talk to me about talk to me about prophecy. Well, I mean, first of all, I wanted to illustrate a quality that uh, uh, Baby Moll has, and uh, you know, I have a I have a niece with autism, and my brother always likes to point out that you know the, the great gift that she. Uh, displays is, is her ability to live completely in the moment. You know, there really isn't much of a past for her. There is sort of a future and anticipation of the things that she likes, but otherwise she's totally in the moment and for the most part, absolutely delighted with it. And that that's always a lesson for all of us who are so caught up with our to-do lists and, you know, email, uh, you know, the, the way she lives. So that was one aspect of what fascinated me about Baby Mom. And then the other was, uh, you know, I, I think that 
in India and in many other places, uh, Colombia, the land of you know Gabriel Garcia Marquez, people live in this in this sort of parallel world of you know there's the material physical stuff going on, and then there's this rich spiritual you know divining, forecasting, you know interpreting element, and uh, it's not questioned as much as you know we might in in, in America. And, uh, you know, many people seem to have this ability to talk about the future or read your palm or put your horoscope together. And, you know, who knows? Um, some of it is pretty striking um, and some of it is perhaps not. But maybe a ball has the gift and uh, that would not be an uncommon thing for certain people to have a gift like that to tell the future. If I counted right, there were 84 chapters divided into 10 sections. And each chapter had a title, and it almost felt like if I were just reading the title chapters alone, one after another, it would make an interesting story in and of itself, or, or perhaps a poem. So talk to me about writing those chapter titles. Did they, I guess this is a, a craft question again, did you title each one as you wrote it, or did that come later? Many of them, I think, uh, sort of the title was immediately apparent from the content Sometimes it was necessary to sort of go back and rethink titles. Uh, but, I, but I think the interesting thing is more and more people just don't use titles. You just go from one, two. And I sort of like the idea of a title. I like giving the reader a slight you know, hint, uh, just as you do with a book title, some, some sense of what's ahead. Not necessarily exactly what. In fact, sometimes you like to play against the grain with the title. You like to you know, sort of create a, a tension between what the title implies and what really does happen. So, yeah, I love uh, chapter titles, and I'm always as intrigued as it sounds like you were by what was the author's intent here? <laughs> and, and then, you know, to go back and think about it. There were some references to books like Moby Dick or, or perhaps books by Dickens, books written in English, what authors influenced you as a writer and like whose works have stuck with you? Well, I mean, so many that it would be, you know, hard to list them all. But I've, I've had a long friendship with John Irving, who absolutely loves Moby Dick. And I think I read Moby Dick ever more carefully because of John, uh, as he also has a great love for Dickens and wrote the introduction to, I think, one of the uh, Penguin Dickens editions. But, you know, apart from, you know, Dickens and Melville, I just love uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I love uh, Saul Bellow. I, I love Dostoevsky. Um, and I think some of these tastes are more recent. In other words, um, you know, I, I, if I stumble onto a writer whose work uh, I like, I wind up reading everything of theirs. And even though I had read Bellow before, during COVID, I picked up, the Adventures of Augie March, and I was just so blown away. So I think your taste, just like your interpretation of the past, is very much dependent on how old you are and, you know, when you're looking back. And so of late, uh, I, you know, I do read as much as I can of contemporary books. It's very hard. I get a fair number of books to, to blurb, and I, I do my best to read them. But it's always easier to sort of go to something that's been vetted by people like you and has has a certain reputation, and, you know, you know, it's worthwhile to invest your time. And often that tends to be uh, writers from the past, part of the canon that I never 
completed because I was in medical school and reading all <laughs> kinds of other stuff. So I always feel like I'm playing catch up. The sorrow, as I was reading this, it at times it just felt unrelenting. And I was just the reader. Are you ever affected as a writer writing these scenes that affect the reader so much? Yeah, I think I definitely am. I mean, it was sort of a funny that every time I came to three scenes in particular, three or four, it didn't matter that I was revising them for the hundredth time, uh, they would affect me. They would affect me deeply. And if I heard someone else reading them to me, which is often a strategy, I would ask my partner to read something back to me so that you could sort of experience it as opposed to, you know, just reading it. And I would tear up and and, and so would she. So, yeah, I think uh, as a general rule, I think if you're not moved by what you've written, then you can't expect the reader to be moved. And, you know, conversely, uh, going back to our conversation about structure, if you're surprised by something that is developing on the page, you know, different from what you anticipated, I actually think that most of the time that's a good thing because then the reader will be equally surprised. So, you know, that is the only barometer you have to go on. And added to that, a very an editor that you really trust because there is a point where you lose objectivity about these things and you need someone you trust to tell you this is great but belongs in another book and you know this goes here and more of this and less of that and so on. I wish I would would have marked the times I had teared up, but I'm sure I'm sure <laughs> it'll affect me again when I read it the second time. I don't know, I don't know whether to apologize or be happy. <laughs> no, it's, books rarely make me tear up, so that's a good thing, I think. I should also add that you know if there's a fair amount of death in this novel, there's also a fair amount of life, and I think that's reflective of our world. I, I often feel that, you know, it's not that I'm, you know, overplaying death. Far from it. I just think that positions in general are more conscious of mortality. I certainly am, and uh, that's what makes our lives our lives rich and poignant. And I think most of us in society spend a lot of time in denial of our mortality, whereas in fact I think it's a empowering thing to have that sense that you know. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. And to, to bring your best to it because it can end abruptly sometimes. Around the time when Philippos was discovering fiction, I read this line. Fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. What truth about how the world lives do you want readers to take away from The Covenant of Water? Yeah, I'm not sure that I was uh, re referencing a particular truth, but I think if a book resonates for us, it's because it affirms what we think we know about our, about life in general. So you can think of good books as being like instructions for living, arming you and reinforcing you on a path that you're already following, even if the book is set in the 16th century or you know the 1900s. But I suppose that the truth that I was conveying, not 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 in a pedagogical way was that, you know, at time that, that we are mortal and at times of stress, whether you live in the COVID era or in the 1900s, the things that sustain you are family and are, you know, your, your friends and your loved ones and your faith and your rituals, you know. So um, it was nothing more than that. It was basically to affirm what we all are doing uh, and give us strength to keep doing that when we're challenged. 
Well, the book is The Covenant of Water. Abraham Verghese, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be with you. That was Abraham Verghese, author of the book, The Covenant of Water, which was published by Grove Press. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.